Welcome to Double Happiness Multiplied with Sally Barker, the complete guide to enjoying your multiple pregnancy and building a happy, healthy family life. Welcome to Season 1 of Double Happiness Multiplied. I'm Sally Barker. On Episode 9, we honour those families who sadly didn't get to take one or more of their babies home. Alexa Bigwarf shares her story of grief following the loss of one of her twins due to twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. Psychologist Dr Monique Robinson talks about the importance of reaching out and speaking to others who've experienced the loss of a multiple. And Joanne Beattie tells us of her devastation at being told the heart of one of her twins had stopped at just 21 weeks gestation. They're known as angel babies. They're the precious souls who didn't make it into the world alive or they were only here long enough to exhale a few short breaths of love before passing away. The sad reality of multiple births is that compared with singletons, babies from multiple pregnancies have a substantially higher rate of perinatal death. This higher rate of loss is largely due to preterm birth. It's not uncommon for one or two babies from a multiple pregnancy to die in utero. The emotional pain and the strain on the family unit after losing one or more babies from a multiple birth is undeniably excruciating. Alexa Bigwolf was diagnosed with twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome when she was 20 weeks pregnant with her identical twin girls. By the time the condition was detected, the disease had progressed to stage three, which made treatment options less effective. There was emotion overload just all the time and I wanted to be happy and I wanted to... I wanted to to have faith and believe, and, and I still believed when, when they were both born and both alive, I just believed that the medical system was going to fix her, that it was still going to be okay. So, you know, when they told us it was time to turn off the machines, I just, I didn't believe it. And then you get into the whole mess of trying to grieve one child while you've got another one who's still trying to survive. And it was really difficult to bond with her for multiple reasons. I didn't even get to hold her until she was about a week old. And then I was scared of bonding with her because I wasn't sure that she was going to live either. It was really difficult, especially like I find myself in the middle, literally in the middle of every situation, because obviously I understand the loss of losing an infant, but I don't understand the whole empty arms because my arms weren't empty. You know, I mean, they were emptier than they should have been. So then I would feel guilt that I felt so sad because at least I had one and I had multiple people tell me at least one came home. And that's just not a really, just don't say that. Don't, don't say that to somebody who's lost one of their twins (laughs) because, you know, there's nothing that will ever replace that other baby. It's almost our anniversary. I know by the time you air this, it will be long past, but it's December now. And the babies were born on December 10th in 2011 and Catherine passed away on December 12th. And I was looking through some of her stuff. And I was just thinking, what would my life be like today if she had survived, good, bad, or other? And to be honest with you, if she had survived in the state that she was in, our lives would have been really difficult, to be honest. So in some ways, I can can look at it as a blessing that she was released from this world. Because when we talk to the cardio specialist, they told us that at a minimum, she would have to go through three, potentially four open heart surgeries through her life. We didn't know what level of brain damage she had suffered due to the fluid on her brain. Her lungs were all kinds of underdeveloped because of all the fluid that had grown in her abdomen. I mean, just all kinds of things. So 
I shared this sentiment with someone the other day. Like I never had that opportunity to spend two or three days in my bed just crying and just trying to get over it and just being miserable like you want to do, you know, when you're when you've suffered that kind of loss. And I couldn't do it for two reasons. I had two other small children that needed me and I had one in the NICU and she needed me more than ever at that point in time because the breast milk is so crucial for babies born that preterm. So I didn't actually get to grieve the other baby. I didn't get to grieve Catherine until months later when we were home from the hospital and things were getting more normal and I knew that Karis was going to be okay. And and it is difficult because it's it's a constant like bittersweet sensation constantly. And I still find myself sometimes like when Karis went to her kindergarten orientation, I told the teachers that she had had a twin sister and you know, part of it was registering her for kindergarten. That was a, that was tough. Mm. Like I really, uh, you know, I've gotten to the point where a lot of things are easier, but that was one of those moments, one of those big moments that you're like, there should have been two. We should be deciding whether they're in the same class or not in the same class. You know, we should be deciding whether we stop them from, from wearing matching clothes or whatever, you know, more than anything, it wasn't a, I want you to know that I had twins and only one is here, but more than anything, I wanted it to kind of be a normalizing thing because it's not unheard of for Karis to be like, I have a baby sister named Catherine and she's dead. (laughs) So, you know, which for us is normal, but for an outsider, it can be very off-putting or, you know, very shocking. So um, I wanted to kind of give her teachers a heads up that if she talks about Catherine or especially they start doing like family tree stuff and things like that, I wanted to make sure that they were aware of the situation. It, it is hard. I mean, each year we put up the Christmas tree and I have a lot of angels wings and, and memorial ornaments for her. And, you know, I fight that urge to hang up a stocking for her. I, I have fought the urge for years to not send out Christmas cards that included her name on it. And a lot of people, they, they think it's weird. And I, I understand that. i if I hadn't gone through this situation, I would probably find it a little weird if I got it a Christmas card with 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 someone's baby who was no longer with us. I mean, just like you wouldn't sign your husband's name to a Christmas card if he was deceased. You know, I get that. But it's it's a uh, each year gets easier. They'll be I still celebrate both of their birthdays on the 10th. Uh, we always have a cupcake for Catherine. And um, I'm sorry. <laughs> When I I don't get emotional about it too often, but we're in that season. On the 12th, we have made, I have made a big effort. My husband grieved very differently than I did. I made it a point to celebrate her life on her angel day on December 12th, the day she passed away. So I created what's called Catherine Day. And each year we do something different to do something in memory of her, in honor of her, and to give back to our community on her behalf, basically, because I want to celebrate her life and I want to do something good in her memory. How do you tell your other children? How do you tell them about this situation? I have to tell you that was one of the worst 
parts of this whole thing. My daughter, Ella, she was 23 months when they were born. She was almost two. She kind of had an understanding for what was going on. She's always been really advanced. I mean, even at not even two years old, she was talking up a storm and she knew that mommy was in the hospital. I spent five weeks on bed rest in the hospital before the babies were born. So that was mommy's house and they would come in the evenings and visit me. And, you know, that was actually the hardest part for me of the whole situation was being apart from my my little people. But they would come to mommy's house, as they called it. And she understood that there were babies in my belly, but she didn't really understand what it meant that one was alive and one wasn't. She understands it now. She's almost eight years old and she still every once in a while will ask me questions about Catherine and and all of that. My four-year-old son, though, he was completely different he knew what was happening. He knew that there were two babies in my belly. In fact, one of the funniest stories, I've always loved to interject humor with uh, sadness because I think humor is like God's gift to helping us get through the worst parts of life. But I remember one day I kneeled down next to my son and was giving him a hug or something. And he took his little hands and he put one hand on each of my breasts and was like, mommy, are these the baby's heads? (laughs) I mean, it just was like so hilarious. And I was like, no, those aren't their heads. But and then he would ask me questions like, how are the babies going to get here? Are you going to spit them out? <laughs> you know? He was very aware that he had two baby sisters that were going to come join us at some point in time. And um, when Catherine died and we came home and told him, he was really angry at us, really angry at us. He, I'm, I'm not going to make it through this one. <laughs> he said, you know, you told me there were going to be two babies. Why am I only getting one? And, you know, he was very, very angry about it. At, at four years old, he's he's a sensitive kid. And we would, I mean, and I remember over the next month as we had conversations, we were very, very open with our children about about her and about death and what had happened. And we talk about it very, very openly. And I, I do think it's a shame when people shut their children out. We tend to to place the level of grief that adults feel and assume that children will be the same way and it'll just shut them down. But in reality, they don't feel grief and fear the same way that, that we do because they don't really understand death to the degree that we do, but they do have tons of questions. And he wanted to know, like, where is heaven? And this is when my faith really struggled because it was really hard for me to tell him like all these things that I I all of a sudden seemed kind of silly to me. And, you know, not to put down anyone's faith, but it is one of the things that I think people who suffer through a loss like this really struggle with because you're like, why did this happen to me? And, you know, all, all that stuff. But I remember just telling him these stories of, you know, she's happy in heaven and I'm sure she's with my grandma and grandma's holding her and loving on her and all these things. And while I was telling him these things, you know, my heart's breaking, but it was making him feel better. And then as Karis grew up, we just made it, we've made it a point to, to keep her sister very much a part of her life, whether that was the right or wrong thing to do. I don't know. There are some days when I wonder if we've overdone it. It's not like we don't talk about it all the time. We've just kept her very much in her life, but we went on a field trip not too long ago. She's in kindergarten this year. We went on a field trip to the park and uh, she was walking a little bit ahead of me. And I heard her tell her friend, I don't even know why they were talking about this kindergartners. They're so crazy. She said to her friend, I'm not scared of dying. And her friend just kind of looked at her like, what? (laughs) And she said, my baby sister's in heaven. And when I die, I get to be with her. 
Psychologist Dr Monique Robinson says the one thing she sees the most with grief is that other people don't know what to say. She says they often feel they need some magical sentence to make you feel better and their awkwardness can be really isolating. So it's important to understand the grieving process and arm yourself with strategies to use when talking to people about the loss of your baby. The most important thing is, I think, the stages of grief. There's this really great model of the five stages of grief and I see it all the time with grief of this initial disbelief that I, I just can't believe this has happened or even the denial of it hasn't happened, there's going to be a way to fix this or there's they've got it wrong. Is denial one of the stages? Yeah, disbelief yeah. and denial, I think, not making any decisions in that first initially afterwards because the shock and the, I guess, flood of emotion makes it very difficult to think clearly and unfortunately often you're asked to make a lot of decisions in that early time where really you're not very well equipped. You know, sometimes I'd love to say, well, you'll think about that later, but if you are making decisions about what's going to happen with, with the baby, you, you're being forced into that very quickly. If it's the loss of a twin and you've got the other twin, you're probably going to be delivering soon. All those sort of things before you've actually had a chance to come to terms with the grief. Then you go through often the anger of the feeling like whose fault is it? And some people will be much more programmed in general in their lives to what we call externalising behaviour, which is so things that happen to me are caused by others. Even worse, if, if it's the guilt of it's caused by me, I think bargaining comes into sort of that, that guilt of, well, if I hadn't done this or I'll make sure that I live a really good life from now if only the baby would survive or I'll stop such and such that I do if only I could have this. You know, that feeling of I've got to make a deal somehow to try and get this to work out the way I want. Obviously, if the baby has died, that sort of phase is not necessarily practical, but it's that feeling like, I wish I could change something that I've done in order to have this. It's a control thing, which is not helpful. It's really not helpful. I had someone say to me that when her baby was born with a cleft palate that she was really pleased that she'd done everything right during pregnancy because otherwise she'd really be blaming herself right now. And I thought, gosh, you poor thing. You know, it's not about blaming yourself even if you had done some things wrong. Um, after guilt. There's the depression, sadness, the real depressed mood, the low mood of just that teariness um, with grief before you eventually get to the acceptance. It's a big generalisation but men in our society just aren't trained to talk about their feelings and so for some men, they and, and that it's not something that you say, well go see a counsellor. It's very difficult for men and often when I see couples, the um, women will be doing all the talking and, and the guy will be very quiet because it's just not necessarily a natural thing to do that so that's something to be really careful of is that if talking about it and, and thinking things through doesn't come that easily to really avoid the things that make things worse to really be careful that they're not letting it out in different ways because women often do have more of an emotional release early they can be at the, say the acceptance part of the grief earlier than their partner might be you also hear men often talking about the fact that because the pregnancy is not happening to them, there's this distance that in some ways it feels like the mother has more control over the situation because it is happening to her, the doctors are speaking to her, you know, the, the medical attention is on her, that men feel like, you know, when we're talking about the bystander, men can often really feel like the bystander because they're just not involved. It's not up to them to have bed rest in order to make sure that the babies are safe. The woman's got to lie on the couch. She can do something about it. The man just has to sort of worry that what's what's happening and they don't have that same sense that there's some control sometimes. 
with these sort of things, there's there's a big financial impact of all this as well. And it's a lot generally if um, the mother was planning to go back to work after sort of six months or so, well, that, that may not be possible anymore. So all those sorts of initial plans with the finances are going to suddenly need to be revised. And, and then again, it's often men who need to deal with those practical financial aspects of things while also grieving and while also going through the same stress and the same worry. We've talked about the stages of grief for the mother and the father. Mm. If there are other children involved, how do we deal with that? It's about targeting the information to their developmental stage. I know you often see sort of people talking about our angel babies, the baby that's in heaven. So I think acknowledging that the baby is their brother or sister some women very much involve the, the baby that's passed away in family conversations. But again, that's not always easy and it may also attract some negative attention from others around you. So I know of one woman who, when she talks about her children, she talks about her three children, even though one of them passed away at birth. But for her, she wants to include everyone in the family. For other people looking at her, they say, that's a bit weird. You know, she still talks about this baby like it was a baby, but it was, you know, delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, stillborn so so I guess everyone's different everyone's a little bit Every different family's different generally with most people an openness about what's happened is sort of a path to healing um, bottling things up or, or keeping things to yourself and not acknowledging sort of I guess the ostrich with the head in the sand of sort of thinking I don't want to know about it uh, it's happened and I just want to move on and I don't want to think about it is not always the the, the quickest path to healing also, I was thinking as well, having a script that you rely on, that you've repeated enough times that it doesn't cause the emotional distress is a really good thing to have, just a prepared statement that you say, yes, I was having twins, but unfortunately one of the babies didn't survive and this is the only twin I have now. Rather than either avoiding people because you don't want to answer those questions or feeling like you're going to break down in front of strangers when, when you get asked those questions... When it comes to loss and grief, Joanne Beattie says if it wasn't for her family, she doesn't know how she would have made it through the worst possible experience of her life. The first trimester couldn't have gone any better if we'd tried. Our screening test came back and we had the best numbers our obstetrician had ever seen for identical twins in years. And we went away for Christmas excited at the idea of having identical twins joining our family later the next year. We got into early January 2016 and at our anatomy scan at the halfway mark, it just all went wrong. The sonographer had to get the obstetrician to come in and we could tell something wasn't quite right. Basically, within 24 hours, we had been rushed over to a specialist team at King Edward Memorial Hospital as we'd been diagnosed with something called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. After going from thinking we'd won the lottery against the odds of having identical twins, we somehow lost that ticket and ended up just in this horrible situation. Our situation was quite severe. It had come on aggressively and acutely and both our boys were at risk. One baby was incredibly small, Logan, and had no amniotic fluid and our second boy, Lewis, he had too much fluid and had put pressure on his heart and all of his systems, really. So we were operated on the following day with a laser treatment surgery, which thankfully they can do here in Perth. And then we were just told to wait and see what happened. A week later, we had a 
good scan. The doctor was quite happy with the progress the boys had made in that week. So we started to think that, okay, maybe things were okay. We'd hit a hurdle and I would just have to take it easy for the pregnancy and we'd have to keep an eye on it, but we would be all right. We were being seen weekly. So we returned the next week and... Sorry, this never gets any easier. It's almost two years now. Um, we were told that Logan, had his heart had stopped beating and they didn't know why, which has always been a bit hard to live with because they felt the doctors, an amazing team of specialists, felt the surgery had gone well. And from the previous week's scan, the boys looked like they were doing okay. But in the end... It was just decided that Logan really just actually couldn't do without the support that his brother Lewis had been giving him. And his little body just couldn't cope. I think it's one of those days that you'll never, I'll never forget. My husband won't forget either. And I don't think we've ever cried quite as hard as we did that day. I remember asking at that point, what did we, you know, what did we do? What happened with Logan and what was going to happen with Lewis? And at that point... We were told that in some ways it was the best thing that could have happened for Lewis. His pregnancy should have continued on to be safer and healthier. And it was hoped that he would, from that point, carry to term. I just had to then accept that I would have to carry Logan with Lewis for the remainder of the pregnancy, which is a very peculiar feeling to carry one child alive and carry another child who's passed on. And... Seeing Logan in the scans every week from that point, at first I found that a really difficult thing to grasp. But in the end, I actually took some comfort that I still had a little bit of time with him and that somehow he, he had looked after his brother. So we had about two or three weeks where things had settled to some degree of normal pregnancy. Walking around Ikea of all places, I just thought I haven't felt Lewis move very much today. Maybe I'll just have a sugary drink and do that whole have a rest, you know, have some sugar, get that baby moving. And he didn't. And I suppose after an hour or two, my husband and I felt that we just had to go and it was a weekend. We went into the emergency department at King Eddie's and was told that my amniotic fluid around Lewis had substantially reduced and we'd be lucky to get to 30 weeks. By that point, we were 25 weeks gestation. So after being told, OK, you've lost Logan, but you'll get to term to be told you're going to have a baby by 30 weeks. It was just being slammed back into, I'm not even sure what, quite what the right word is a topsy-turvy world. We were back to the gold team specialists. We were back to weekly scans. And we got to 26 weeks and a bit. And I woke up and thought, my waters have gone. Phoned my midwife and my doctor in a complete panic. And they said, right, get down to King Eddie's. Got there and after a few hours, it was like, no, I don't think your waters have broken. Yes, there's little fluid, but no, no, it's okay. And I thought, okay, great, we'll go home. We'll just, you know, sit tight again. One of our amazing obstetricians, Dr. Dickinson, came in and she put her hand on my stomach at probably the most opportune time and said, that's a major contraction you're having. You're not going anywhere. We have to give you the steroids to basically it helps the baby's lungs develop to help Lewis. Your waters have started to leak and you're not going anywhere now. 
I took, I had two nights with steroid drugs and then my waters fully broke two nights later. So I was just put on bed rest in the hospital and was told, you know, you could sit out for a few more weeks. Babies can do okay in the womb without fluid, but it's the risk of infection that we need to watch for now. So we yeah, admitted into King Eddie's and got to the Saturday of Easter weekend and had some fairly massive pains. And they checked and they said, no, this baby, you know, your cervix is closed. We'll give you some morphine. It's fine, you know, just try and get some rest. And the following day on Easter Sunday, I felt okay. I was having maybe fairly major pains every three or four hours but nothing that was regular what I would have identified as as labour. We had some visitors that afternoon and my little boy at home Archie came in to visit and then my husband took him home came back for about eight o'clock and sat with me in the hospital for an hour and I had dozed off to sleep and he left at about 10 to 9. At 20 past 9 I woke up and thought oh gosh I, a pain in my back oh, maybe I need the bathroom, oh, I'm not sure what's going on. And I got into my bathroom and realised that it was Lewis coming and caught his head in my hands whilst hitting the emergency button for the midwives and just have this memory of standing in the bathroom door, screaming for help and holding his head and this midwife rushing through the door and just shouting to get on the bed. Both my boys arrived a few minutes later. Lewis just popped out, literally, with Logan. We'd been told that Logan would probably arrive after Lewis, and the midwives had said that if they hadn't known what happened, they would have been worried that the babies were joined because it never happens like that. So as hard as it was to see both of them in that, situation. Somehow Logan had brought Lewis with him and Lewis was crying, which I don't think at the time I fully realised was such a good thing. 27 weeks and three days. He came out fighting, waiting for what felt like an eternity for the doctors to arrive in the cart to take Lewis and screaming, where are the doctors? And being told to try and breathe and to stay calm and those words just don't mean anything when you have a baby lying there that you can't hold, you can't touch. Just surreal. Before we go today, I'll read a poem written by an unknown author titled A Special Birthday. Please, God, make them remember that today is a special birthday. Make them understand that the memories don't go away. Bless them with ears to hear and hearts that care. Enable them to listen while I share. Shelter them that they may never know my pain. Help them to remember, Lord, that I wish that my child was here so we could still celebrate, to understand that I still feel the nearness of my child, to see beyond my smile and the words, I'm okay. Please, God, just let one remember today is a special birthday. Thank you for listening to Double Happiness Multiplied. Coming up on the next episode, we discuss taking care of your children while you have babies in the neonatal intensive care unit. Psychologist Dr Monique Robinson has some practical strategies to help normalise the situation as much as possible. Joanne Beattie continues her story following the birth of her twins at 27 weeks gestation. 
And senior social worker Claire Dimer talks about the pressures families face while they have babies in the NICU and other children at home. Until next time, I wish you double happiness multiplied. The only purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform and should not be used to diagnose any medical condition. It's no substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it doesn't constitute medical or other professional advice or services. Instead, I encourage you to discuss your options with a healthcare provider who specialises in multiple births. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experience and conclusions. Thank you for listening to Double Happiness Multiplied, the complete guide to enjoying your multiple pregnancy and building a happy and healthy family life. Remember to head over to doublehappinessmultiplied.com to get access to more great resources.